series of messages uh, for the past few weeks looking at the idea that each of us are created in the image of God. We, we, we saw this in, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verses 26 and 27, that we were created in God's image. And we've been looking at the implications of this for the way we live and the way we uh, conduct our lives uh, as, as men, as women, as humans. What does it mean to be reflecting the nature and uh, heart of God to the world? What does it mean to, to bear His image, to show other people what God is like through the way we live? And we uh, have been looking for the past two weeks into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, sort of seminal teaching recorded in the book of Matthew. These are, are thoughts that I, I believe Jesus would return to often during his teaching ministry on this earth, ideas that his followers would have become very familiar with. Uh, and yet, at the same time, as, we, as you consider the first time that he said some of these things, they were extremely radical. Th these ideas that he's sharing were complete shifts away from the traditional religious practices of his time. And what I believe he is moving us toward is the idea that we are to have a relationship with God. This is what he keeps driving at. And this morning, the question I want to ask as we read these words, what are you driven by? What are you driven by in your heart, in your life? What drives you? Um, I, I understand there are myriad answers to that question. Uh, I am, I'm actually a people person, which can be good and it can be bad, uh, but I'm often, in, in my experience, driven not so much by what other people think about me, but how other people react to me. If they react positively, I'm motivated by that. If they react negatively, I'm demotivated by that. So, what is it that drives you? What is Jesus getting at in these words as he continues his sermon? Um, we, we, we began this portion of our study with his, what is often referred to as the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth, I think is what this phrase goes. And then we, we heard him say things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody listening had to be going, what? That's crazy. Well, how in the world I'll never get there? Right? which is to the point that he also makes in this presentation of material that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He says this just in the previous chapter than the one we're going to read now. And he sets the stage for then going into the question of what drives the human heart. And you're going to see 
uh, several, he's going to unroll that question in several directions during the, the passage we're reading this morning. But I just wanted to set that stage and sort of invite you into this text. And as you're reading it, as we're reading it together, think about what drives you and what God wants to be the driving influence in your heart and in your life. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Would you like to pray with me? I'm serious. We'll do it together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For you forgive others their trespasses. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. I went to a fairly formal church growing up. Many of you probably did as well. I could not stand it. Uh, Many of you know this about me. I, I am a rebel at heart. I do not like to be told what to do. Right, Kath? Amen. Um, (laughs) This place was very formal, very structured, and it was not really set up for kids. I mean, they had a great children's ministry. They had a great little setup for kids over in another building, right? But the worship service was not, let's call it kid-friendly. And I, I try not to condemn this church where I grew up because there are some wonderful uh, people there who, whom God loves and who love God and who are living out their faith in, in incredible ways. I'm not disparaging any of that. It just wasn't an environment that made me want to grow closer to God. It made me want to run. And I did. I I tried that. That didn't work out so well either. Um, But at one point, I I can say that my perception of Christianity was, it was really all about getting in line following the rules, being a good boy or girl, and doing what you're told, right? I, I went through the communicants class when I was in seventh grade, and the church told me when I graduated that now you're a member of the church, uh, and my mother was tired of dragging me to church. Literally, she would, I, I have vivid memories of her literally throwing me in the back seat of the station wagon, slamming the door, hitting the accelerator, right? And if she slowed down, I might jump out. <clears throat> um, it was a loving throw. It was a loving, maternal, caring toss, right? But <clears throat> nonetheless... She was tired of fighting me, and so she just said, okay, all right, you made it through the class, you're a member of the church, you go if you want to. Like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? And I guess the the great irony of the whole thing is that God eventually makes me the pastor of a church where I do this to other kids, right? And I hope, I hope, Wesley, that what I'm doing to you is, is a little more tolerable than what was done to me when I was your age, right? Um, and and you're, you're, you're a grown-up young man now, and if you don't want to come to church anymore, tough. You're, you're still coming. 
All right. Just want to make, just want to be clear. Um, I, <laughs> I picked on the wrong guy, and he's out. Well played, sir. So, Peppy, where are you going? What's going on? Everybody sit back down. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Okay, where was I? I grew up thinking that Christianity was a religion. And the truth is that the heart of Christianity is a relationship. It's a connection with God through Jesus Christ that occupies our heart. It lives within us. And that is what changes us and causes us to behave like Christians. I thought that one was a Christian because he or she behaved themselves. And I came to learn through God's do we call his providence cruel? No, we can't use that word. Um, but through his providence, that what he's after is in here. It's our heart. And that what he really wants from us is a relationship with him, a living, breathing relationship. And so the first thing I'm going I'm to say that we see in this text in Matthew chapter 6 is a call to develop the relationship, not the religion of Christianity. To sort of reorient ourselves from this behavioral idea of what faith is all about to this much more difficult to get our minds around heart-driven relationship. And that's what I believe Jesus is trying to say in this passage, um, you know, as Americans, we have literally turned Christianity into a competitive sport, right? And when I get together with other pastors that I don't know, inevitably, in the first course of conversation, the question comes up, how big is your church, right? It's not about that. It's not about our behavior. I don't, it's not about what's going on on the screen behind me, I can tell you that. Um, so, what are the things that drive us, what, what draws us closer to God. So the first subject that Jesus takes up is giving to those who are in need, right? And he, he takes this question up early in the passage, and he tells us effectively that giving to others draws us closer to God. When we care for the people around us, when we make sacrifices so that others can can be cared for, it actually grows us closer to the heart of God. It is a unfortunate misinterpretation of this passage that some 
have taught that if you give, God will give back to you. In other words, if I, if I give $100 in charity, I should expect $300 to come back to me uh, in blessing from God. Um, that's not what he said. And we need to remember that the growing closer to God is the reward that comes through sacrifice. That when we, when we give to others, it draws us closer to God, and that is in and of itself the reward of which Jesus is speaking. He tells us that praying draws us closer to God. So giving to others, praying, engaging in prayer will draw us closer to God. Fascinating, this whole section on prayer has so many uh, fascinating implications, right? I think the most interesting line in the whole thing is where he says in verse 8, God already knows what you need before you ask him, right? That begs a question or 10. Why pray? If God already knows what we need, why would he have us engage in this weird exercise of talking to someone who doesn't seem to be there? It seems weird. Um, He also goes into this uh, anti-hypocritical little line and tells us not to pray in front of others that we may be seen. So is he prohibiting public prayer? I don't think so. I think he's, he's get, what he's getting at is the motive that what's driving you to pray. So we can pray along with each other, and there is always the risk that some of us, at some of the time, will be praying for all the wrong reasons. We'll be praying just so that no one else knows how much pain we're in. We'll be praying so that no one else thinks that we don't pray or don't know how to pray or aren't spiritual enough. We pray for all kinds of reasons. And I think what Jesus is saying is that he wants our hearts engaged with God and everything else is secondary to that. The reason that we pray and that Jesus tells us to pray, even right after he says, God already knows what you want, what you need. He says, then when you pray, pray like this. Right? So he's not saying, don't bother praying. He's saying, in fact, engage more deeply in prayer because God already knows what you need. And then he goes into what we call the Lord's Prayer. And Anytime, anytime I'm asked to do a wedding for a, for a young couple and, and one of, the, one of the, you know, the bride or the groom grew up in a Catholic family, I always suggest, including in the order of service, the Lord's Prayer. And I sort of, I sort of I say, you know, 
because when your grandmother, who's from Ireland or whatever, uh, when she comes to this service and I don't have a collar on, she's not going to think you're actually married. She's like, That's, what was that? That wasn't a mass. That was some little dog and pony show. What, who is this guy, right? So when, when, when I have that dynamic, I always try to uh, conclude a couple of prayers rather than my normal in Jesus' name. I'll say in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit just to kind of help people in the room feel like there's, you know, it's familiar to them. And I'll include the Lord's Prayer. And I'll always joke with the bride or the groom, whichever one did not grow up Catholic, I'll say, just look around because I will, I will hit that button and all the people who grew up Catholic will go into autopilot. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, blah, 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 you know, blah, 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 and Jesus, don't get me wrong. Um, but they will, they, as soon as you say our Father, boom, it's automatic, right? And it's beautiful that we can all enter into the same prayer almost automatically, even in this setting. At the same time, Jesus has just said, don't heap up the same words over and over when you pray, right? So the Lord's Prayer cannot be the only prayer we pray. It is, it is intended, I believe, to be a guideline for how we pray, and I'm just going to break it into two parts for you. As Jesus says, pray like this, pray in this way, the first thing that he does is he orients himself, he puts himself in a position to want what God wants. He says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, glorified be your name. He's putting himself in the posture of, of worship, and then he effectively says, may your will be done, not mine. I know I have a lot of things I want, but all of them are subordinate to what you want. And then I think the other half of the prayer comes with this, this burden, almost, that we are to forgive the way God forgives, which is a very tall order, that we are to be the people who forgive like God forgives. Um, I have chalked up myriad offenses against my Creator in my lifetime, and I'm still going. He has forgiven me, period. I typically add up the offenses that others commit against me, and I keep a little account, right? I do not typically forgive the way God forgives. And Jesus is reminding me that's the standard. That's what he wants from me, is to be forgiving the way he is forgiving. And so he tells us that, that giving draws us closer to God, praying draws us closer to God, and then he brings up fasting as a way we can grow closer to God. Um, as you might be able to discern with your eyes, Carl and I are not very good at fasting. 
right? What, what is he saying? What is he, but we love him anyway. Yeah. I love you, Carl. Um, why does Jesus go into this? There's a couple of reasons. One is the, the, the hyper-spiritual or religious people of the time would go into days of fasting that were prescribed by the order of the calendar that they followed religiously, and they would always make themselves look miserable, like I'm suffering for the glory of God. and, And so everyone would know when they were out and about, oh, he's very religious, he looks miserable, he must be fasting for God. Or she looks terrible, she must be holier than me, right? And so this was common practice. But I think the other thing, that part of the, one of the themes in this series is that the physical represents the spiritual. And I think in this case, in, in, the, um, in the few times that I've engaged in fasting over the course of my relationship with God, I can tell you that the physical can actually lead the spiritual. When we deny ourselves the comforts of this world, we are forced to open pathways spiritually to find comfort and sustenance that we would normally find by gratifying our appetite. Does that make sense? When we deny ourselves in these physical ways, we open spiritual doors. It's not a magic formula. I can't promise you that if you fast, you will grow closer to God. In the same way, I can't promise you that if you pray, God will give you what you want, right? But as we engage in these spiritual disciplines, if you want to call them that, we do grow over time. We, we are opening spiritual doors that normally remain shut. The physical can lead the spiritual. And so, as Jesus is telling us that we are to develop our relationship with God as opposed to a religious, a set of religious practices and observances, he's also saying in these passages that we are to develop the inside, not the outside. We're to worry about what's truly in here, not the way people perceive us. And I think, if I can just kind of briefly summarize what I think he's getting at in verses 19 through 21, is that we are to invest in our hearts. This is where God is most interested in terms of our being, in changing us from the inside, in dealing with what's in there. We are, we are to get that part right with God. Please do not think that this is something you can do once and be done with, the getting of your heart right with God. I would argue that once you have done that once, it should make it easier to go back and reinitiate that reorienting of yourself to God. We, all of us, are called continually to go back to that cross to look at Jesus and say thank you for what you have done for me, for what I did not deserve. In fact, I was busy piling up offenses against you, and you went there 
to forgive me. And as we continually come back to that place where we know that we are undeserving of his love and forgiveness, we are renewed from the inside. We're not worried about how we appear to others. We're worried about how God is manifesting himself within us. And so we're to invest in our hearts and we're to open our spiritual eyes. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if if your eyes are healthy, your body is full of light. If your eyes are not healthy, how deep is that darkness? When your spiritual eyes are closed through, if you have my problem, rebellion, um, you could have any number of other problems, pride, uh, you fill in the blank. We are walking around in the dark. And God says, I want your spiritual eyes to open. I want you to see light and have direction and understanding and purpose. And so we're to invest in the heart. We're to open our eyes and let his light shine in. I should say, I think what Jesus is pointing to or hinting to here is, I'll put it this way, where do we find light spiritually? I would argue it's, it's here, primarily. It's, it's in his word. What Jesus is saying, open your eyes, open God's word, engage God's word and let it inform your life. Let it show you where you are and where he wants you to go. Um, Psalm 119 has a beautiful verse that just says, your light, your word is a lamp unto my feet. That God's word gives us light and direction in life. It helps us know where to go. And so we invest our hearts, we open our eyes, and we set our priority. That that whatever we've been chasing needs to be dropped, and we need to stop and look up and say, this is what matters the most, my relationship with my Creator. And that will actually orient us better and in healthier ways to the people around us. Um, When I'm following God's will rather than my own will, I'm probably a lot easier to live with. Um, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he's essentially saying, this is about love. Our relationship with God it must be driven from the heart by love. As we do this and we stumble through this thing called Christianity, we will be tempted to make a religion out of it. And we have to come back to the cross and remember it's a relationship. It's about our connection to our Creator through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, we have forgiveness and hope eternal. Will you pray with me? Father God,
as you call us to reflect who you are to the world, we pause to acknowledge before you that we do not always do that well. We worry about all the wrong things, and we get caught up in the ways of this world. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, and we pray that you would lift our heads and fill our hearts to draw us toward you in a living, loving relationship with our Creator, that that would define who we are and how we live, that we would better reflect who you are into this dark and hurting world around us. Lord, use us to shine your light, to be your presence in people's lives, to truly bear your image here on earth. Thank you for all that you have given us to that end. May we use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.